Okay, so just to be clear, my mission is to pose online as a 9-11 truther, infiltrate various Reddit communities which oppose the official theory that Osama bin Laden orchestrated the event, and then persuade people to think that's stupid. Indeed. Now, your cover name is Gareth, you are the proud owner of a cat called Mickles, and your favourite colour is blue. You know, I've read the dossier, it's weirdly detailed. Why would I need to be able to describe my genital warts? Look, you never know where a conversation online is going to go. Yeah, sure, fine, but the bit the dossier doesn't describe is how I go about persuading these truthers to give up on their conspiracy theory. Just make it look stupid. Say some stupid things. Like? Mm, I don't know. Unicorns are behind the attack. Osama bin Laden was a hologram. The Queen is actually a Sasha Baron Cohen character. That seems a bit basic. Look, your job is to simply make truthers realise that their views are silly by making their views look silly. It's a really simple task. should really only take you, oh, about an afternoon? But... I don't like it when you say that word. But... Aren't they going to realise I'm a plant almost immediately? Hey, fellow kids, I'm a 9-11 truther. I believe the Twin Towers were destroyed by a controlled demolition caused by unicorns. Who's going to take that seriously? Hmm. You know I panic when you start ruminating like that. So you're saying we can't just send you into a Reddit community making outrageous claims and expect people to take you seriously? Well, it's not 8 or even 4chan. Which means you might have to go away and do some actual research? Yeah, and that then raises a big question. What if they're right? What if it turns out we're the ones who are wrong? Inconceivable. Yeah, but we are running a conspiracy against them, so... Don't ask whatever is on your lips. What, and hear me out here, what, what, if this isn't the first conspiracy we run against? And why would the New Zealand government be involved in a conspiracy around 9-11? I don't know, why are we running a secret psyops campaign to persuade people it wasn't an inside job? I, uh, well, well, uh, Yeah, okay. While you're trying to work that out, I'm going to go and make people think the flat earth theory is stupid. We can at least agree we don't want the real shape of the earth getting out. Toodles. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison in Auckland, New Zealand, and they are Dr. M. Dentith in Zhuhai, China. I notice you're not doing your, your usual sipping of alcohol at the start of every episode. Is that because you've run out or because it's early? It's, it's too early in the afternoon where you it are? It is 4pm here, so I mean, I, I, I could justify having a drink, but I also kind of feel that whiskey at 4pm is kind of a waste. Whiskey, to my mind, is either something you have on your birthday at breakfast or you have after dinner. Now, of course, I could go to the fridge and get a beer, but I just haven't. I've just had a, 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 I must say a glass of co- coffee. I've just had an espresso shot from my fancy espresso machine. So, frankly, that will do me for the time being. Well, as long as there's something in your system affecting you chemically, um, We should probably have a disclaimer at the start here. uh, Internet is not the greatest this week, possibly at both of our ends, to be be quite honest. Um, So there may be the occasional dip in quality, but we'll we'll see what we can do. 
We will persevere, and by we will persevere, you will persevere, or you'll stop listening to the episode. But either way, things are going to happen. Yes. So we the 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 content uh, the quality of the internet connection, unfortunately, is not something we can do about. The quality of the content of this episode is entirely within our control. Uh, but frankly, we make no guarantees about that either, really. Indeed, th- this podcast does not come with a satisfaction guarantee in any way, shape, or form. No, no, it doesn't. But but maybe it should because this week we're back to a, a more more conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre. We've got another paper to look at by someone whose name has not come up before, unless I'm unless I'm misremembering. No, this is a new entrant into the conspiracy theory theory literature. A name we will see quite often going forward. He's one of the contributors to my 2018 book, Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously. And this is his first paper, which is a critique of a paper we covered only a little while ago by Hmm. two authors by the name of Sunstein and the questionably pronounced Adrian Vermeule. So that's Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule, or Adrian Vermeule, or Adrian Vermeule. I think at the time we had a bit of debate as to the pronunciation. We will simply call them S and V going forward. Could work, actually, yeah. So I guess before we give the game away completely, how about you play that pleasant little sting and we get into things? Indeedy. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. So, today we are looking at a paper called Is Infiltration of Extremist Groups Justified? Question mark. By Curtis Hagen. This was published in the International Journal of Applied Philosophy, issue 24, 2010. Which, according to my math, was something in the realm of 40 years ago. Something like that. A long I mean, given the pandemic, it certainly feels mm. like 2010 was 40 years ago. Yep, no, I think you, I think you must be about right. And as we suggested earlier, um, this paper is very much a reaction to or a critical evaluation of, it calls itself. Uh, that paper, um, cons- Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures by Sunstein and Vermeule, um, which you looked at. Uh, th- th- that was the most recent paper we looked at. It was, yes. In fact, the reason why we ended up yeah. looking at that paper was so we'd have the kind of frontispiece to be able to look at this paper. Yep. So that was episode 316, Amir nine episodes ago i think there was what what with your um quarantining and everything sort of extended the period between these ones that normally would be but let's let's get straight back into it now i this this paper rubbed me the wrong way and i don't um, think that's oh, entirely I've, fair I've of me you've read I've my read notes I, uh, this this paper bugged me and i'm not sure if my my problems with it are entirely justified but let's let's just get into it and we'll see well, actually, we'll see where we so I also had the same kind of issues you have now when I read the paper probably a decade ago. I don't have the same kind of issues I had a decade ago, but I do now. Your comments on the paper and the notes are basically where I was back in 2010 when I read it, but not necessarily reflective of how I see the paper now. Okay. That's oh, maybe you can catch me up by by the end of this. Maybe we'll be singing the same tune. But um, Josh, you don't sing. No, sometimes I sing, but not often, and not well. I think is the point. Um, 
so let, let, let's begin. This paper has an abstract, which is always useful because we can just quote the whole thing um, entirely and, and don't have to think up a, an introduction into the paper ourselves. The abstract reads, actually, it must be your turn to read an abstract. It Why must be. And I'm, I'm fairly sure you've deliberately chosen it's my time to read the abstract because you're going to go, how many times can M mispronounce Vermeule? Let's find out. So the abstract goes something like this. In fact, it goes exactly like this. Well, depending on your pronunciation of Vermeule, so you know, mm. maybe it does go something like this after all. Many intellectuals scoff at what they call conspiracy theories, but two Harvard law professors, Cass Sunstein, now working for the Obama administration, and Adrian Vermeule go further. They argue in the Journal of Political Philosophy that groups that espouse such theories ought to be infiltrated and undermined by government agents and allies. While some may find this proposal appalling, as indeed we all should, Others may find the argument plausible, especially if they've been swayed by the notion that conspiracy theories, or a definable subset thereof, by their nature, somehow or another, do not warrant belief. I will argue that Sunstein and Vermeule's proposal not only conflicts with the values of an open society, but is also epistemically indefensible. In making my case, I will adopt their favoured example, counter-narratives about 9-11. Which all all makes uh, perfect sense, I think. I did notice this paper, let me just count, it is 16 pages long and five of those are endnotes. Oh, Uh, yes. Curtis does love his footnotes or endnotes in this paper. Admittedly, he's a man after my own heart in that early on in my career, I used to have footnotes and endnotes galore in essays in the first draft of my PhD thesis. My supervisors kind of drummed that out of me at the time, but I still have the temptation to put a lot of footnotes into work. And so I kind of go, yep, I understand. Footnotes are really, really useful if you want to expand upon a point, whilst at the same time not ruining the flow of your argument. The problem with footnotes, or endnotes, as my supervisors pointed out, is that very few people ever actually read them. Mm. I, I have to admit I haven't read through them all. I just I just skimmed them. But I did see, actually, at the start of the endnotes section, before any actual endnotes, um, there's the paragraph... In mid-January 2010, rather, a draft of this article prompted writer Mark Estrin to blog about the topic. An internet buzz immediately ensued, including within a couple days blogs by Mark Crispin Miller, Glenn Greenwald, and many others. This buzz caught the attention of David Ray Griffin, who quickly developed an impressive book-length critique entitled Cognitive Infiltration, an Obama appointee's plan to undermine the 9-11 conspiracy theory to which readers are hereby directed. And, um, to which interested readers are hereby directed. Interested readers, sorry, yes. Um, David Ray Griffin seems to be quite a big 9-11 truther. I mean, he's... He's um, also a relatively prominent philosopher of religion, which yeah. is also fairly interesting. So his domain of expertise is actually the philosophy of religion. As a sideline, he's been doing work on basically inside job hypotheses around 9-11, advocating for them. He's a very interesting character in the philosophical literature, because arguably David Ray Griffin is a major conspiracy theory theorist. But as far as I'm aware, his output has largely been books and not journal articles, but blogs and 
and things of that particular uh, of that particular stripe, which has never really entered into the philosophical discussion of the debate. He's not about defining the terms of the debate and working out the contours of what conspiracy theories are and aren't. He's more interested in going, look, people label the inside job hypotheses as pejorative conspiracy theories. I'm going to argue people are wrong about that. So he's a kind of interesting character within the literature in that he is a prominent philosopher, and yet we don't really ever talk about him. Mm. Yes, I mean, later on in this article, they're going to, I can't remember if it's in the body or in another end note, uh, they make reference to his book, I think, Debunking, 9-11 Debunking or something, which was an, uh, an, a, re- a response to the famous popular mechanics debunking of 9-11 truth theories. But anyway. Yes, David Ray Griffin has written a lot of books mm. and all a lot of books, and they're quite long books, so I'm quite impressed by his ability to simply churn material out, which is not a comment on the quality of it, but I just mean he seems to be able to produce an awful lot of work in a very small amount of time. Hmm. Um, so moving into the paper proper, um, he starts by by setting out his, his goals, as a good introduction should, um, where he says that uh, Sunstein and Vermeule... <clears throat> Uh, they suggest undermining conspiracy theories by engaging in a conspiracy against groups that promote them. I will argue that beyond the obvious irony, this recommendation is epistemically indefensible, even when considering the rather extreme case of 9-11 conspiracy theories, which is their primary example. I'm not sure... Now, let's, let's just pause there, because hmm. I think one of the things that rubs you the wrong way around this article is that you take it that Curtis is engaging in 9-11 inside job apologetics. At the very least, some industrial strength devils advocating in their favour. That's what it does come across. Now, I should point out, he does say the rather extreme example of 9-11 conspiracy theories here. So, yes, you could read the articles being a, a kind of hidden defence of 9-11 conspiracy theories are warranted, Sunstein and Vermeule are wrong to put them forward as being demonstrably false. You could put forward the argument as being, well, look, the example they use is bad. I'm going to give you a story as to why that example is bad. I know something about Curtis's views, so I have a kind of qualified opinion here as to exactly what move he's making here. But I think charitably, if we're going to treat this argument seriously we should go down the devil's advocacy route because that's the most charitable interpretation mm. of what Curtis is doing here, which is going, look, the example that Sunstein and Vermeule use here to show that conspiracy theories are mad, bad, and dangerous is not a particularly good example because we can postulate that some rational people acting rationally form rational beliefs that 9-11 was an inside job thus showing that this is not the kind of example that Sunstein and Vermeule should be using in the first instance. Mm. Well, let's, let, let's see where he goes then. So he, he does um, quite a good uh, summary of the, the Sunstein and Vermeule paper, which, as I recall, was, was relatively lengthy. Um, but he, he says, Sunstein and Vermeule's argument in a nutshell is as follows. One, lots of people are susceptible to belief in conspiracy theories. 
Two, some of these theories are demonstrably false. They are products of crippled epistemology, that is, they're based on limited and incorrect information and fueled by informational and reputational cascades. In an open society, one is not warranted in believing things that imply that knowledge-producing institutions are as unreliable as some extreme theories imply. Three, in addition, some of these theories are harmful, as shown by the Oklahoma City bombing, which is blamed, at least in part, on a conspiracy theory regarding federal agents' actions in the Waco siege of 1993. Four, the government should try to counter demonstrably false and harmful theories. Five, but conspiracy theorists often dismiss evidence that comes from government operatives. The theories have a self-sealing quality that makes it more difficult for outsiders to rebut or even to question them. Six, therefore, the government should infiltrate groups that espouse conspiracy theories in order to undermine those theories by introducing cognitive diversity from the inside. In my response, I will focus on, one, the notion of demonstrably false theories and how that is determined, two, the inappropriateness of the recommended infiltrations in an open society, and three, the slippery slope, practice, the slippery slope of the practice of deceit, which is... is, is uh, as good, a, as good a statement of intent as you could want, I think. I have to say, he talks about sort of the relationship between the, the, these epistemic issues and, and the actual consequences of them, these harms that they're worried about, and, and finishes up by saying, now to be clear, I'm not here arguing that the 9-11 truth movement is right in its most basic claims. I'm merely pointing out that the relation between potential harm or good such theories can engender is connected to whether or not they're true or at least contain valuable truths. And so by challenging the claim that 9-11 counter-narratives are demonstrably false, I'm also thereby challenging the implicit claim that such narratives are, on balance, harmful. If they are not demonstrably false, and therefore not clearly pernicious, then the notion that biased and deceitful means ought to be employed to eradicate them is an odious notion indeed. So that very much, I mean, that, 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 that puts the cards on the table straight away. The answer to his question, is infiltration of extremist groups justified, was very definitely a no, and he's going to be setting out why. But as we go on, I don't know, it, it sort of feels like that that statement of intent there, well, we, we'll see as we go through, but that, it, it felt to me like that sort of ends up taking a back seat to a discussion around um, whether or not Sunstein and Vermeule's main uh, example of 9-11 truth conspiracy theories are demonstrably false. So, yes and no. I mean, it is true that this does kind of take a backseat in the argument as presented in the article. But I also take it that it's kind of self-evident from the beginning that if you can go look, if SNV's hypothesis about demonstrably wrong conspiracy theories is itself wrong, then it just follows from that that their policy recommendation about what to do about demonstrably false conspiracy theories has to be wrong as well. So you, it's, it's basically good old conditional lo- logic. You're going, if A, then B, well, not A, therefore mm. not B. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the charitable reading of this is to keep that little sentence in mind all the way through and he does that come back to it every so often. He does kind of re- reiterate yeah. that point. So at any rate, we, we move on to the next section of the paper called Conspiracy Theories and Crippled Epistemologies, the term that Sunstein and Vermeule use a bit in their paper. Um, so he talks about, they, what, um, talks about what they say about conspiracy theories. The, I mean, if you recall, they will admit, or not, not admit, they, they are happy with the definition of conspiracy theory that allows conspiracy theories to be true, um, 
even when they uh, go from being an, uh, opposed to the official theory to being the commonly accepted one. And he points out that, um, uh, <clears throat> quoting here, it should be noted that according to this definition, the notion that the Nazis were systematically exterminating Jews would have at some point in time clearly counted as conspiracy theory, one that turned out to be true. This is an important example. It shows that one cannot simply reject a conspiracy theory because it seems too extreme in the brutality it attributes to powerful figures, or because of the scale of complicity that would be required, or because of the industrial efficiency with which it is said to be carried out. Shocking though a theory may be, so too are known precedents. Now what's particularly interesting here is that Curtis is going to eventually be one of those people who wants to respect the ordinary language understanding of conspiracy theory, which is to say that it's in some sense opposed to some official theory of an event. So Curtis's latter work is going to argue that part of the definition of what counts as a conspiracy theory is it's in opposition to some kind of official theory or explanation of an event. Hmm. Now, so, so now we start getting into this stuff. He, he talks about how Sunstein and Vermeule say that they're focusing on demonstrably false conspiracy theories, not ones where the truth is, is simply undetermined. And um, Hagen does take exception to this. So the, the first thing that I got hung up on was this, this uh, segment where he says, they cannot mean, however, that theories that postulate insider complicity in the events of 9-11 are literally demonstrably false, for that would require a logical contradiction. But there's nothing contradictory about the notion of insider complicity, so they must mean demonstrably false in some weaker sense. Now, I couldn't make sense of that. Where, where is the logical contradiction that he's talking about? So I think the problem here is one of semantics rather than is about logic. So it's fairly clear when you look at the SNV paper that this is a reply to, that actually they can't literally mean that the conspiracy theories they're concerned about are demonstrably false, i.e. they can be demonstrated to be absolutely false and thus unwarranted. They can really only mean a much weaker claim, which is that the evidence seems to stack against these theories so that ordinary reasoners would be justified and then, and then going, well, actually, I'm just not willing to buy that for a dollar. So I think Curtis is trying to argue here that if, if as a philosopher, we take SNV literally, they can't really mean this thing because it would be, it's completely compatible to believe variations of these conspiracy theories, which aren't as extreme as the ones that SNV put forward. Mm. That is, I think, the semantic issue here. They can't literally mean demonstrably false what they must mean is false according to the evidence, and that must be a conditional claim. Right. Yes, that phrase, uh, require a logical contradiction. I hear that in a philosophy article. I, I kind of take it seriously, but perhaps he meant it in a, a different way. And so, yes, as you say, he well, goes I, on to I say... Think, I, I mean, I think it's more, it's a ping against Sunstein and Vermeule for talking about demonstrable falseness, and that they can't really mean A, they have to really mean something which is a weaker version of A. Because if they really do m mean A, then a whole bunch of evidence is going to contradict their view. But yes, it's, it's probably not the clearest presentation of what he's trying to say. Mm. 
Ansius, he goes on to say, I'll assume, charitably I think, that by demonstrably false they mean something like the following. The evidence is so overwhelmingly against the theory that it is irrational from the standpoint of the information available in the society as a whole to believe it. So he gives, he, he does, he, he does say, you know, okay, it, it doesn't make sense to take them literally, literally. So it would take, it would, it would make more sense to to use this weaker definition of what they mean by demonstrably false. But even then, he a bit further down continues. I will argue that even by this weaker criterion, their claim that 9-11 counter-narratives are demonstrably false is false. And a bit later, further, on the one hand, the strongest the, the sense of demonstrably false they intend, the more clearly false is their claim that all counter-narratives about 9-11 qualify. And on the other hand, the weaker the sense of demonstrably false, the more suspect the inference that illiberal infiltration is justified on the basis of a theory meeting that low standard. Now, that's an important point there, because that's once again bringing it back to the question of, is infiltration justified? By then going, well, look, if they mean the stronger sense of demonstrably false as in clearly false, well, that obviously doesn't work because we can show examples of people rationally believing these things, so they're not demonstrably false. If they mean the weaker sense, which is that we should treat these theories as being unwarranted, but also it turns out we can give a case for actually, we can show at least some degree of warrant with respect to some of these theories in the weaker sense, then the idea of engaging in cognitive infiltration of those groups seems really, really suspicious. Because at that point, you're then going, okay, so these theories are harmful and we don't like them. They might be true, but we're going to try and persuade people not to believe them, even though they might be true. And that seems like a bad policy decision in a liberal democracy. Yes, yes, a, a fair point. But I think I think at this point, this is where I, I really started to um, have my doubts about this paper, because from this point on, for the next one, two, three pages, it basically becomes essentially a bunch of 9-11 truth arguments. Now, again, we can we, we can say it's being done in a, in a particular context of Sunstein and Vermeule have said that the example of 9-11 truth conspiracy theories are demonstrably false, and he wants to say, well, no, no, they're not. Here are a bunch of, of objections to saying that. But the links that he goes to to say that um, had me... Had me um, uh, a little concerned, and the particular things he brings up are very much um, 9-11 talking points. He talks about, I mean, so so he says at the start, obviously, Sunstein and Vermeule in this one paper weren't going to make the entire case for the official version of 9-11. You, you, you know, that, that's, that's well beyond the scope of a single journal article, um, but says that possibly they should have maybe referenced someone who has made such a case and says, you know, they could have talked about popular mechanics, the popular mechanics debunking 9-11 myths, but then immediately points out that David Ray Griffiths, Griffiths has replied to that in his debunking 9-11 debunking. They talk about the, the, the NIST reports, but then goes on to say that they're um, essentially uh, uh, biased by being part of the government. He talks about the, you know, um, whether whether or not things were in free fall, he talks about the whole um, uh, molten molten metal supposedly being on the scene, and whether or not steel could have melted. Um, he talks about uh, the, the various um, 
individuals who are convinced that uh, that, that, that the buildings, you know, Building 7 was professionally imploded, uh, link, linking off to patriotsquestion911.com and other such sites. And, yeah, and I, I mean, again, if, 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 if I keep reminding myself all the way along that, no, he's just, he's just reacting back to their point and saying that, well, no, maybe it's not as, as cut and dry and obvious as they want to say because there are lots of people who disagree, then fair enough, but it just keeps going. And it just keeps bringing up points that I keep seeing as as um, as uh, uh, canonical nine eleven truth stuff. Now, admittedly, I mean we're both we're both on record as people who believe the outside job hypothesis of September eleventh that the twin towers and the attack on Washington D.C. so the Pentagon and like was due to the actions of Al-Qaeda as masterminded by Osama bin Laden, etc., etc. And so when I read this paper back in 2010, I had the same kind of misgivings. Because as someone who goes, well, I just don't think there's anything to the 9-11 inside job set of conspiracy theories. This does look, as you say, if not devil's... Sorry, if, if not a full-throated defense of 9-11 truth positions a very awkwardly phrased devil's advocacy of standard talking points that people might have issue with. But I think it is important to note here that these are positions that are put forward by what appear to be reasonable people who have worries about the official theory of what happened on 9-11. And all Curtis has to do here is go, look, Sunstein and Vermeule provide very little evidence in their presentation as to why we should take 9-11 conspiracy theories to be demonstrably false. All I've got to do, speaking as Curtis here, is simply point out, look, here are some rationales as to why people do not take this to be a demonstrably false conspiracy theory. Ipso facto, really, Sunstein and Vermeule declare victory when they've got no grounds to declare victory at all. They just don't do the work to go, the example we're using here actually then justifies our policy recommendation. Mm. Now, another problem I had um, is, is sort of the, 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 the jumping between, I guess, the specific and the general. The, the 9-11 stuff is the example they chose to make. If it turns out that 9-11 is a bad example and doesn't actually qualify, uh, doesn't actually fulfill the criteria that they're looking for in the sort of a conspiracy theory that you'd be justified in infiltration, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't mean that they're wrong to say it's okay to infiltrate conspiracy theories. That just means they need to come up with another example. And it seems, it kind of, it seems... The paper, se- the paper seems to be saying because their example is wrong, they're wrong. But I, th- I feel like you could reply to that by saying, okay, yes, you've proved their example is a bad example, but that doesn't mean that their overall theory is wrong. They've just chosen the wrong thing to illustrate it. Now, that is a fair point. And I'm going to say that's a fair point whilst also going, I don't think that government should engage in the infiltration of communities that say things about them which are mean. But you are correct. If it turns out the example that SNV use is bad, that doesn't necessarily tell us that their policy recommendation is bad. As you point out, it simply might mean that they need to find a better example. 
Now, one reply to that might be it might be hard to find a better example because it may turn out that once again, the standard that SNV use for justifying the infiltration of these groups, of this notion of demonstrable falseness, may not apply to any particular theory. Because as Curtis points out in the introduction, if you use the extreme case of 9-11, which is to say the one where everyone goes, look, this is a really harmful theory to, for people to believe because it calls into question trust in the American government, etc., etc. If it turns out that SNV, SNV's most extreme example also turns out to be a bad example, then you've probably got grounds at that point to then go, there probably aren't going to be any other examples which are going to do the same kind of work. Because if, it, if this example doesn't work, what example are you going to use that actually justifies that policy recommendation? Now, yeah. admittedly, saying that in the year of the pandemic 2021, when we've got COVID-19 conspiracy theories, we have the insurrection at the beginning of the year, there may be better examples now. But at the time, people might go, well, look, if this doesn't work for 9-11 conspiracy theories, this probably isn't going to work for any conspiracy theory. Mm. And I guess the other thing is it, it seems to muddy the distinction, I guess, between between theory and practice. Like, so, okay, in practice, we're having trouble finding a decent article, a decent example that proves our point. But that doesn't necessarily... Uh, disprove the theory and it kind of it seems like by focusing on whether or not this example is, is a good example of something that's demonstrably false the the tacit the sort of flip side of that it, it's still it's still an option that if you could find a conspiracy theory that is demonstrably false then yes it would be justified in the government infiltrating groups for that particular conspiracy theory it doesn't feel like it's actually it doesn't feel like this avenue will actually prove the overall theoretical point he wants to make even if he's shown that in practice this one example doesn't do the job but maybe we'll, now, I, I, do think we'll yeah, as I, say, I do i do think that's a fair point and then i think you're right to say that yes if we agree with the assumptions that snv work with and i think those are questionable assumptions as to whether cognitive infiltration of groups is a good idea when being done by governments then yes, if it turns out this is a bad exa example, it doesn't really matter. Their theory might still be okay. So a better critique of the cognitive infiltration thing would be to focus on no examples are ever going to fit because actually it turns out it's just a bad principle. Mm. But I do think he points out that the demonstrable falseness standard that SNV use isn't a particularly good one because you can just show that actually you can generate reasonable beliefs for these extreme cases. Mm. Um, so at this point, he the next section is open and closed societies, which I think is a a topic that'll be familiar to you if you've been following this series along. Uh, whether whether or not we live in an in an open or closed society and what implications that has on conspiracy theories and the like. Um, so he starts by talking about how um, Sunstein and Vermeule claim that, um, but, but basically the, the good old claim that in an open society, um, conspiracy theories don't, or de decent sized conspiracy, uh, conspiracies rather, don't usually remain secret for too long. And they say there's, um, 
they, 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 he, he quotes them saying, talking about despite abundant evidence that an open society's government action does not usually remain secret for very long, and then says, hey, well, what, what's this abundant evidence? And points out that they only uh, mention two examples about um, exposing secret programs. And um, At which point he can then give two that. examples mm. that count, counter that. Yeah, uh, talks about Watergate and Iran-Contra, talks about... Um, Talks about secrets that were held for a long time, the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, USS Liberty, Operation Northwoods, NK Ultra, Tuskegee Experiment, all the ones he lists off. Um, I thought it, it, there were a couple of interesting points that I thought he made in this section, which are ones that I hadn't seen made before. Um, the one idea about the, the revelation of secrets, he says... Um, Further, the idea that a secret is either revealed or it is not is simplistic and inaccurate. Secrets are often partially revealed, as in Iran-Contra. There was a conspiracy exposed, for sure, but one cannot credibly assert that we got to the bottom of it. Secrets are also sometimes disputably revealed. Many so-called conspiracy theories fall into this category. When a jury found that the government was involved in a conspiracy to murder Martin Luther King, as it did, was a conspiracy revealed? Well, most people don't even know about that finding, so it wasn't revealed very widely. But some may say that preponderance of evidence, it was a civil case, not a criminal case, is not enough, or they may question the validity of the verdict for one reason or another. So whether this counts as a conspiracy that was revealed is ambiguous on at least two counts, and this kind of ambiguity is the norm. The upshot is that the simplistic notion that conspiracies are usually revealed is easily deconstructed, although it's a notion that continues to be spread by even by scholars who should know better. So yeah, it is that that is a good point, which I don't recall seeing before. That when we talk about secrets, you know, conspiracies eventually come out. So it's not actually as simple as that. There can be there's a there's a spectrum, I guess, of what it means for a conspiracy conspiracy to be revealed. Yes, and indeed, as he points out, sometimes you might reveal the secret in such a way that because no one notices it, or it never gets broadcast to enough people, people go, but the knowledge is out there. And people go, yeah, but where do you find it? Oh, it's it's all right. We put it in a filing cabinet in a disused basement in a toilet with the sign Beware of the Leopard in front of it. But the planning the planning permissions for building a bypass through your house were on public display, just that mm. no one knew where to look for them. Indeed. Um, so sort of getting into the idea of, of open and enclosed societies, and again, he's pointing out that there's, this is more of a case of a spectrum than a, than a black and white distinction. Um, as he says, it's, and this is something that we've talked about plenty before, it's, it's, it's more rational to believe in conspiracy theories in a more closed society, in a more totalitarian society. This is something we've said many of times. But he goes to point out that, of course, in a, in a completely totalitarian society, people are probably actually unlikely to believe in conspiracy theories because in a completely totalitarian society where everybody's completely indoctrinated, they'd believe everything the state said, so would never think to... Um, come up with conspiracy theories. So as he puts it, the optimal environment for conspiracy theories would be someplace in between, where it's plausible for them to both spread and be true. Indeed, the distinction between open and closed societies is misleading. There's a spectrum, and the extremes are merely ideals. People can legitimately disagree about exactly where the United States is at this time on that spectrum, which I thought was another good point. Um, and it's, it is interesting to see the, the more sort of nuance coming into this kind of argument. Yes, which is why we should talk about more open or more closed societies. Mm. We should recognize that no society is completely open. 
especially in societies where we know we have secret services and the like. And I don't think we yet have an example of a completely closed society, in part because I think for a completely closed society, you might need to solve the problem of free will, where the problem there being making sure nobody has it. Mm. I mean, I guess technically that was the point of 1984 and the idea of creating a language where it would be impossible to express particular views. But of course, the whole point of 1984, the novel, was the idea that it hasn't quite worked by the time the novel takes place. Mm. Um, so his criticism in, in this area is that, uh, as he puts it, although Sunstein and Vermeule make rhetorical gestures to the value of open societies, their recommendations involve moving in the direction of a more, more closed one. So not, you know, because, uh, as he puts it, their, their um, recommendation is that we enact a conspiracy to combat these conspiracy theories. So that's, that's yeah, becoming more closed rather than more open. Um, and he goes on to say, supposing for a moment that Sunstein and Vermeule's argument is a good one, where do we stop? And here he refers to uh, Brian Keeley's paper, God as the Ultimate Conspiracy Theory, which we've looked at before. So in reference to that paper, he says, um, if those in power determine that the belief in the existence of God is demonstrably false, and certainly some people do find this belief ridiculous, and if, as is surely the case, some religious extremists may be dangerous, should the government infiltrate religious groups and try to undermine their belief in God? Which I mean, yeah, is, I suppose is a is a is a good old reductio ad absurdum. Yes, yeah, so, and that, that's that's sort of where that thing ends up. Um, I, all the way through this, and I think this is just my reading of it. I, I sort of looking looking through it's I, I, not necessarily a defect, but it's just that the fact that every time it comes back to that demonstrably false thing, and I and I sort of thought, well, yeah, that. Like that was a, a criterion that they mentioned, but that wasn't the only thing they said. And it seems to be the thing that he just keeps keeps going on and on about. And it, although he mentions obviously the harm in that last one, he talked, you know, mentioned the fact that religious extremists may be dangerous, so there is a, a, um, a potential for harm there. It always seemed like it was the it was it was the demonstrably false criterion is the important one, and things are merely harmful possibly because of it or something, and. I don't know. Yeah, I, as I said at the start, this one rubbed me the wrong way, and I'm not sure that's fair. But um, that was just the feeling. But you've been rubbed, all this and stuff. now, and now, herein lies the rub. Mm. So the final section is deceit as the cure for a crippled epistemology, where he says he starts by saying, in describing their proposal, Sunstein and Vermeule repeatedly employ the phrase introducing cognitive diversity. But what does this really mean? Make no mistake, Sunstein and Vermeule regard certain conspiracies as diseases that need to be cured. They are not advocating infiltrating groups that espouse these theories for the purposes of achieving a more informed, open and fair inquiry. They want to see these groups undermined, at least and preferably eliminated, and they're willing to sanction deceit to accomplish that goal. As indeed they do, they, they sort of, well, I mean, yeah, as I recall from looking at their paper, they sort of, they, they did a lot of on the one hand, on the other hand, on the other other hand stuff, sort of saying if it's, if, if you're open about the fact that you're from the government, they're not going to believe you, but if you're lying to them, then, you know, if, if you're concealing that fact, then there is a danger that you'll be found out and then that's going to, going to undermine you even more than if you'd been open in the first place. Um but then um, you could also that could actually work in your favour if you if you so 
um, uncertainty and doubt. And so as he says, um, according to Sunstein and Vermeule's proposal, the stated objective would be closer to where the corrupted COINTEL program actually ended up. They explicitly consider the possibility that the infiltrations they recommend might, if partially exposed, sow uncertainty and distrust within conspiratorial groups, which could raise the costs of organization and communication. They consider this as a jolly good outcome. These effects are desirable, not perverse. Is, is a good thing for government agents to disrupt these kinds of peaceful efforts to organize. Why? Because on Sunstein and Vermeule's view, such groups espouse beliefs that are irrational, given that we live in an open society. And again, that was where I sort of thought it, it seems to go into it seems to go into the epistemology more than it needs to. I don't think Sunstein and Vermeule were saying, you know, it's good to disrupt these things because they have a bad epistemology. It's because their bad epistemology can lead to things like the Oklahoma City bombing. And I know that he does acknowledge that later on, but it just sort of seems that the emphasis, I guess, always seems to be on the epistemological concerns above the others. Well, I mean, I suppose in defense of Curtis here, once again, if the worry is that the SNV case does not work in the, as Curtis states, the extreme case of 9-11 conspiracy theories, because we can show that there's reasonable belief in these conspiracy theories, then the policy recommendation of SNV does, in Curtis's word, appear to be quite odious. So if it turns out they're going, look, we should interfere in these groups even if they can rationally show that it's reasonable to believe these particular conspiracy theories, then that seems like massive governmental overreach. Mm. And they then, um, so, so, and then there, there's a funny bit at the end of the sentence, uh, at the end of the section, where he talks about an example of of the sort of thing they could be talking about, which comes from a draft of their paper, but not the actual final paper. Which I thought was a bit weird. Talking about the Lincoln Group, um, which uh, had had been. Um, paying Iraqi, Iraqi newspapers in the early 2000s to publish lots of news stories written by U.S. military personnel, um, which uh, were, and without saying that where it had come from and that these things were true, but but highly selective, um, and that just seemed like a weird thing to do. Like presumably it was remo- it was in the draft and not in the final for a reason. So why have a go at them for that one? Yes, I must admit, I do think this is not a particularly good move, which is to say, oh, but in a draft version of the paper, they made the following point. It isn't in the published version of the paper, but I really want to point out what was bad about this. As you point out, we actually don't know why that was removed between the draft and the published version. I mean, it could be simply the case that reviewers went, actually, this is not a good example, and here's why. It could be that reviewers pointed out, actually, this is a bad example because you've misdescribed the situation. Or it could be the case that the authors, between drafting the paper and publishing it, when actually we're not particularly happy with this example for whatever reason they have. And thus pinging people for removing something from a paper prior to publication when you don't know why they removed that thing prior to publication, I just don't think is a move we should be making in written philosophy. In the same respect that I kind of get frustrated when people go, and X has given up on this view, and their only reference is PERS.com, to say, look, I've had personal correspondence with the author, and they've given up with this on this view. Okay, so 
unless you're going to provide me with the letter or the email, why would I believe that they've given up on the view Perscom, especially given I've known of cases where someone said, oh, and the person X has given up on the view Perscom. And then when you contact the person, they said, no, I haven't given up on the view. I simply stopped corresponding with that person. And that person assumed that because I stopped corresponding with them, I've given up on that particular view. It's a very bad idea to use these kind of things in arguments, I feel. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, maybe we should just disregard that section then. Um, I don't know that it needs to be there. So perhaps we can just... Well, the, th- well the, thing, the thing which is interesting about this, because we will come back to this much later on. So the Sunstein and Vermeule piece ends up being republished in a book by Sunstein alone. And that's kind of fascinating. And that it is essentially the same text with only very few modifications. But Vermeule ceases to be credited as an author of that piece. Now, I think that's a legitimate question there. When you've got essentially the same piece in two publications, but you've got a massive difference, which is the removal of a co-author, then you can actually raise the question, okay, so what happened between time X and X plus one? Because you're dealing with published work at this point. I just don't think it's wise to be dealing with drafts when, as you say, you don't know what's going on between a paper being drafted and then getting through the review process and being published. Although I should point out there are some questions about the review process around the Sunstein and Vermeule paper initially, which indicates that maybe it wasn't peer-reviewed in the same respect that a standard paper would be in a philosophical journal. Mm. So at any rate, we, we come to the conclusion which is short enough to uh, read out entirely on its own, uh, or entirely in full, rather. Um, It reads, Sunstein and Vermeule state that their recommendation of infiltration is to apply only to demonstrably false and potentially harmful theories. Their chief example of demonstrably false theories is the set of theories that posit insider complicity in the events of 9-11. What is the proof that settles this issue once and for all? My challenge to Sunstein and Vermeule is this. Can you prove in a fair forum that the theories in question are false? Proof in an unfair forum, of course, is no proof at all. The fact of the matter is this. They cannot prove it. So they wish to enforce their belief through epistemically illegitimate means. Their proposals exemplify intellectual cowardice. To adapt the bitingly critical remarks of the Chinese sage Lao Tzu, the man of reasonableness makes his case, but when no one responds, rolls up his sleeves and resorts to persuasion by other means. Of course, the point transcends this issue of what to do about alternative theories about 9-11. The point is that we cannot engage in the kind of epistemic shenanigans that Sunstein and Vermeule recommend and, at the same time, credibly assert that alternative to mainstream theories about whatever may be dismissed on account of our fair and unbiased structures and organisations that adjudicate the truth. So that's, so, so that's where it ends. And, yeah, I mean, it, it's... It, I'm going to say it again, it rubbed me the wrong way, and... I was aware as I was reading it that I was doing the thing that I hate when I see other people do it, which is sort of reading it in a particular voice, even though there's no real... I mean, we've all seen someone sort of read out an email they got from someone and read it in a snarky voice and assume that they were being snarky, even though the actual sarcasm 
is something they've introduced to the email. It's, you know, the whole, oh, look at what they say here. Thanks for your help. You were so great. Jeez, what an asshole, you know. It's, but when, when, in fact, it was completely And I, I sort of, even though I tried not to at times, was still it, I was still reading it in the tone of, oh, you think 9-11 conspiracies are demonstrably false. Demonstrably false are they? Well, how about this and this and this? Is it still demonstrably false? Did you demonstrate it? Is it demonstrably false? And that's not fair of me, I acknowledge. Um and of course, and on top of that, it was also one of those those um, situations where I do actually agree with his conclusion. I think it is it is it is a, a deeply dodgy move to be saying we should combat conspiracy theories by conspiring against them. It's a, it's 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 definitely a problematic position to take. But I sort of had problems with how he with how he got there. To the extent, and and, and yeah, again, just sort of the the, the question of, of of emphasis. I suppose there was a lot of work. A, a, a decent chunk of the paper was on objecting to the idea that 9-11 truth has been um, conclusively, uh, demonstrably proven false. I can get my truth and false mixed up. And and then the later sections, by contrast, seemed a bit shorter in what should have been the real guts of the argument. Um, and so, certainly in that, I mean, that conclusion there my challenge to Sunstein and Vermeule is this. Can you prove in a fair forum that the theories in question are false? Reads like a 9-11 truth manifesto, even though charitably that's not actually what he was going for there. But yeah, so I, 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 I don't know. Maybe I should shut up and I'm digging myself a deeper hole and that it's not nearly as bad as I thought it was. But it just it just seemed, the whole thing seemed a little bit off and seemed to be not trying prove the conclusion that it stated at the outset that it was trying to prove, if that makes sense. I mean, I do agree that in general, just by showing that the one example that Sunstein and Vermeule focus on, 9-11 inside job hypotheses, doesn't necessarily show that Sunstein and Vermeule's overall hypothesis about cognitive infiltration is bad, even though I personally think it's a fairly stupid policy to put forward for the sheer fact that what better way to prove a massive conspiracy against a set of conspiracy theorists than by showing that they're actually are conspiring against us. I mean, it's just a, it just seems like a self-defeating policy initiative. So there's the other thing to point out here, and I didn't point this out at the top of the show because I wanted you to be forthright in your discussion of this paper, is that Curtis is a listener to the, to the podcast. So will be probably listening to your forthright discussion of his particular paper. Mm. Now, because we'll be dealing with future Curtis papers as well, I could have probably kept that on the back burner for quite some time, but it would seem, it would seem a little, just a little bit illegitimate. But I thought it was important to make sure that you weren't going to pull any punches, although conversely, of course, people can then say, oh, but M... You pulled punches there by being all defensive because you know Curtis and also know Curtis is listening. So, of course, it actually cuts both ways. Mm. And I think part of it, it may be um, because I've been slightly poisoned by that Amy Baker Benjamin paper we looked at a while ago. Oh, and that was which, terrible. Which very definitely was sort of said it was making a particular argument, but then the whole thing was just a vehicle to advance some 9 11 truth theories and this even though that that wasn't necessarily the case in this paper it still sounded like the ones the, the the problematic ones that I've read before as well 
Well, so frankly, I blame you for poisoning my mind with um, with dodgy papers in the past. Oh, you complain I poison your your mind by forcing you to read anyway. Well, yes, no, that's true. Um, so that's yeah, certainly an interesting paper and and interesting points made up, uh, not not made up, brought up. I look forward to hearing what Dr. Hagen has to tell us in the future. And that, I think, is all I have to say. Uh, anything else before we wrap up the episode? No, apart from, of course, advertising the standard patron bonus episode, which this week is actually conveniently linked to our discussion of Curtis's paper, in that, first of all, we're going to talk about good old Project Veritas, and a bit of news actually from June, which I forgot to update people on before I left for China, and then a case of what might be government infiltration into a conspiratorial group, the fact that the Michigan kidnapping case, the one where people were planning to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, may turn out to be a lot more complicated than people thought at the time. Hmm. So if you're interested in hearing about those stories and you're not currently a patron, uh, you can become one by going to patreon.com and searching for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And if you already are a patron, then thank you very much. Uh, You are among the best and brightest and sweetest smelling people in the world. It's just a scientific fact. Although I wasn't just thinking now, talking as we were about tone. Of course, you can patronize us, or of course, you could become a patron and you could patronize us i mean you could mm. really really patronize us if you really wanted to yep, some no, of those patrons are so patronizing it's entirely within your rights to do so precisely so we'll head off and and organ uh, and record that bonus content just for you lucky patrons and to the rest of you uh thank you for listening anyway because you're our audience and without you we're not really a podcast um I mean, to the, we would be. Well, I mean, I mean to, to, it's one, yeah, one of those if a tree falls in a forest things. Yeah. Look, if you upload an episode to a podcasting hosting service and no one listens, you're still a podcast. You're just not a very good podcast. Well, there we go. Without you, we would be not a very good podcast. And with uh, you, and... we're probably not a very good podcast either. Mm, but marginally better. Marginally more. I don't mm, know. I mean, it is, mm. it is, it is arguable. Mm -hmm. Anyway, patron or not, to the lot of you, I say goodbye. And I say bye good. Mm. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. M.R.X. Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, it's just a step to the left.